Hey, welcome to No Shit, There I Was. Today, you get to hear from one of the first people I met when I arrived at West Point. It was a really fun time in our lives. We called Beast Barracks when I met Ryan Miller. I see another pacey white guy like me, but he's wearing glasses. And then he saw... New Cadet Snowden. And we got to be in the same basic training squad, appropriately named the Chain Gang, with, well, Ryan says it best. So we got something extra special with Dan Choi as our squad leader. Where we got to see extremely hilarious stuff like this event. He threw me and Victor Moose, entire room, anything that would fit out the window, out the sixth floor of Max Short. He threw DeMoose a mattress out the door because that wouldn't fit out the window. And then he broke DeMoose's bed. <laughs> And that's not to say Dan was a bad guy. He's probably one of the only reasons I was a halfway decent cadet. He just had a really unique way of getting our attention. Friendships in the Army are funny things. Throughout my experiences, I've met so many incredible people. And I can honestly tell you that if I ran into them tomorrow, we would have a beer and it would be like there was never a time apart. Even though there was. And in it, we may have trod on wildly different paths. This episode, you'll hear Ryan's story. How, when our paths parted... Though we both ended up in Iraq, Ryan's trip was cut short. A prospect that many would be elated by. Except he came back after his vehicle was blown up by multiple IEDs in a single attack. His path would then be, altogether, very different from mine. Complications from wounds led to an eventual amputation. A different career outlook led to new opportunities. And those opportunities exposed him to a different way of life. A way that has vastly improved his quality of life after years of pain management and burdensome medical procedures. A way that has the potential to help so many others in a veteran population ravaged by depression and post-traumatic stress and witnessing suicide rates that are outpacing civilian counterparts. But don't despair. This is a good news story. Or it can be. It's really kind of up to you. You don't know what I mean yet. But you will. I'm excited to have him on this episode and for you to hear his story. Welcome to No Shit, There I Was, a podcast committed to telling the stories you may never otherwise hear. So settle in, kick back, and take it all in. This week's episode is brought to you by Emblem Athletic. Anyone who's been forced to wear a reflective belt and crew socks just to work out at a gym can tell you that sometimes it's hard to look cool no matter how badass you are. Let Emblem Athletic make you look as badass as you are with custom-designed and built athletic gear that you create with their awesome team. So to catch you up on where we'll start the story, all graduating officers from West Point and ROTC go into a training pipeline. For the infantry, you go to basic officer course, and that teaches you a few basics. Then to ranger school, where you earn your coveted tab, which is a rite of passage that not everyone achieves, and then you show up to your first unit. For me... I showed up and flew to a deployment two weeks later. Ryan reported to his unit in Germany and got to enjoy the adventurous life of a young 20-something male in Europe. So I'd say Germany was, was you know, probably still the best year of my life. Obviously, made good friends. Everyone got pretty close. But we had a job to do. So all the fun and games ended, and we deployed in July of 2007. So Ryan's unit arrived in Iraq, and at first was split apart to fill in on multiple duties around the country. Ryan and his platoon ended up in the green zone that I talked about last episode, a clutch place to go. But eventually, his unit would consolidate and be assigned to clear out an insurgent stronghold in South Baghdad, which is where we pick up. But then, reconsolidate most of the brigade 
to clear out this, you know, this, the last remnants of Al Qaeda in Southern Baghdad. It was pretty cool. It's pretty high profile. And it was just a clearing operation over, you know, over multiple days, you know, starting from one end of the city and just working to the other, just clearing out. Right. So, so explain what's a clearing operation. What's that going to consist of? It's, it's going to consist of, you know, cording off an area. So you're controlling what's going in and out of it. And, you know, basically, you know, starting from one part of it and just working your way. I mean, in this case, they're literally house by house to a degree through these large urban neighborhoods. Again, trying to flush out any remaining bad guys that are in there, any enemy and the enemy was Al Qaeda. So, you know, it was a certain type of fight we, we saw there until really until you feel confident that you've cleared it out and you've gotten to their side. And uh, what was really interesting about this and about some of these urban neighborhoods is as you'd clear them, especially over a period of a days. Now, this this area, it was like 90 percent abandoned. The only it was probably the only people that were left there were women and children that had nowhere to go. You know, this place is mostly abandoned. They were actually using it as a HME factory. They would just dump, you know, chemicals out in the floors of these things, or these or these houses, the concrete floors. Just use a broom, mix these things up. It would dry up. They'd scoop it up, and you know, they had pounds and pounds, or hundreds of pounds, or like thousands of pounds in total of homemade explosives from this whole operation. Right. Ran into a couple of those myself. Yeah. Yeah. So we. Uh, yeah, so it was cool. It was interesting, though, because, you know, the people would wind up coming back as you cleared out behind you. So that was a good reinforcement of, you know, being able to kind of hold that territory, if you will, you know? Yeah. Because that was one of the you know problems as we go in. We'd clear an area out, and then we'd leave, and, you know, it's just a power vacuum in there. So now we had folks that, you know, starting to come back and, and trying to start things up again. They have protection because we're still there also in that area. And we were going around uh, at this time with SERP funds, you know, going around handing guys 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 200 bucks if, you know, their car got door blown off or their house got a door blown off or broken windows, all these things. Yeah. So walk, walk through that. So that, that this is one of the things that uh, I try to explain to people. And I, I think I fall short every single time. So explain SERP funds. This is absolutely crazy. So, and again, I got to, I got to, my memory. I can't believe it's already fading, but it was money. Well, you don't have to get yeah. what is a CERP. Just like the, what are you doing you're with giving, it? You're giving, yeah, the people money, the civilian population money. You know, so talking about winning hearts, you're like, yeah, you're winning their wallets by just giving them money with very little questions asked, very little proof. I mean, you're literally walking out there with $1,000 of U- U.S. cash currency, and you're going around and you're saying, oh, you had this here, just, you know, check this block off, sign your name. I think it was that simple. And here's your money. And it's interesting. I tell people, you know, $1,000 in CERT funds, and I can't remember what the, the acronym stands for, but it, it did more probably to win, quote unquote, win the war, or at least benefit U.S. military personnel, probably more than a $60,000, you know, Hellfire missile or Hydra rocket, whatever those things cost. And it was because you're, you know, you're more than just saying, hey, we're going to do good things for you. Like, hey, here's cash, you know, for Fortunately, unfortunately, I have you want to look at it, cash talks. And uh, you start giving people money, they start actually becoming a little bit friendlier to you. So, uh, yeah. and, and what was beautiful too about, now there was, in fact, this kid was in my company, you know, stories of people abusing that system because again, it was controlled, but I, you know, I don't remember it seemingly being all that controlled. You know, like we were just can't have money. I think I had money in my pockets once. There's, there's a, 
like really, really simple receipt system. Yeah. Like you didn't, you didn't really have to do much to prove that you did anything. Exactly. And honestly, I think, you know, and, and I hope, I hope I'm not, you know, like I'm not naive about this and wrong, but I really do believe that, you know, there are very few institutions in the world where you can give people who are relatively low in the structure of the institution, a bunch of money where you can easily skim off a little bit and nobody would know and not actually really worry about that becoming an issue. You know, I think that's kind of pretty cool. It speaks a lot. It either speaks to my naivety or, uh, you know, actually I think more, it's more likely it speaks to the character of the U S military. Yeah. I mean, and there are definitely cases where people abuse that system, but on the other hand, there are, I think more, and I'm I'm sure there's cases where people weren't caught doing it, Mm -hmm. but I think by and whole, there was a, you know, there were not that many people, you know, skimming, which I, I agree with you in that point. It's, it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, you know, things were looking good and Dora East Rashid, whatever it was uh, called in um, late mid, well, mid October of 2007. And uh, I was in a striker. I was on the far Western part. So the last port that had been cleared, major operations there had ended a few days earlier. And yeah, actually, and the other thing too is, you know, with the IEDs that we were mostly faded facing, and that we had experienced in the previous weeks, they were either houseborn IEDs, you know, like we were just been talking about, you know, some, some of those, some of that HME, they would, I mean, they had like water buffalo sized things. They'd make deep areas and intersections. And we had intersection to be like 200 meters away and get, you know, people getting crap rained on them uh, after the, uh, they blew them. We got really good you know, as a unit at, at, basically we just cut every line, every line we saw that we couldn't know exactly where it was coming or going, you know, power lines, anything, we just cut everything. Cause those all had to be, command wire debt and um you know that, that mitigated most of the risk and that was probably i think money people went back and gave cert funds for it's like hey we had a you know even though half of these are illegal anyway the way this is rigged we're still gonna give you 50 bucks because we cut a few of your power lines and stuff like that right but uh and it's not so yeah. we spent so much time you know every day before we went out I mean, most of ours were command wire detonated which is where somebody has an explosive and they string a wire from the explosive to your power device, which is what sends the charge and then makes the thing explode, right, to the detonator. And we had we spent a whole lot of time on our tactics and making sure that we changed it up every day and how we were clearing, how we were finding those things, you know, how we cut them, you know, how we notify people that they were being cut. It was, it was a everyday change in activity of how we dealt with these things. So I definitely know what you're talking about. That's yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, shared TTPs, I believe that's that's right. <laughs> and what's interesting is, you know, this was a Southern Baghdad, mostly Sunni, so you know, those are Al Qaeda type bad guys. Well, there was this one section that was almost, I think there was like an abandoned, like this big lot of just dirt and dust or something. But there was some space between that neighborhood we were just operating in and a place called the Saw Apartments, which were they kind of looked like kind of Iraq, Iraqi, what you imagine if you're from the Northeast and you've seen like, you know, the typical housing project, you know, these big brick buildings, kind of basic brick buildings. It was kind of the Iraqi equivalent of that, you know, these big kind of apartment buildings, right. uh, saw apartments, and it was a Shia neighborhood. So, you know, the Shias were the somewhat oppressed majority in Iraq. Well, we, uh, you know, they used to hop a lot of mortars back and forth before we actually went in there to clear out the Al-Qaeda guys. And at that time, we had a something of a ceasefire 
very informal because it would get broken a lot, mostly by them and in Sadr City with the uh, Mutada al Sadr's, uh, the Jaysh al Mahdi, the, basically the Shia bad guys. And when we went in there, they, uh, they kind of just, you know, let us just alone. Let us, yeah, it's mutual enemy. Let them take those guys on. You know, we really hadn't heard from them. We were going to leave them alone. They were going to leave us alone. That's what we assumed. Well, I remember we had to, I had to run out of the sector for like two hours. So, you know, it was like a company out there at a time would be operating in, you know, I ran out and went to the nearby fob, something about picking something up or getting something changed and, grab folks dinner and stuff like that. Uh, and then we headed back out. What's really interesting is, and it's funny because earlier that day, I'd actually seen just the route clearance routes. or just happened to see it. And I noticed that the, you know, one of the roads that was maybe touched once a week, uh, one of the routes was actually hit twice in the last 24 hours. It's interesting because that road was, is called, it was one of the few Iraqi roads that retained its, I guess, Iraqi name, uh, Yohamama Road. Huh. So Yohamama Road, which I think they left it because of the jokes you get from it. Of course. And even our battalion commander would get in on it. And, uh, you know, your mom is looking dirty and trashy and everything. <laughs> and so it's interesting, too, because there have been no SIGAX on that road ever, I, I, from what I recall, or at least not ever. But, you know, like in the whole time we were there or in the, you know, the months preceding, you know, we went out on that road. We're coming back in on it. I mean, which, you know, that road was basically a safe road, you know, in and out and out. There was no really other way in there. And we're driving along in front of the Saw apartments. And uh, I suddenly sounds like someone yelled the word boom in my ear. Like just boom. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, any other explosion normally, you know, it's a compressive blast and it, it's, it's powerful. You know it. Right. This, yeah. again, it's not like someone yelled the word boom into my ear, ear piece. And I had those, uh, those bows. You know, like the pelters or the swords, well, the ones on the strike, as we also said, the, the bows is where they, they're noise canceling for big sounds. Yeah. yeah. Over the year. All oh, those things are all super nice. I, I mean, I own a pair, you know, just to have because they're awesome because they block out loud noises and they speaking voices like they amplify that and you can hook your radio up to it. It's great along one headphone. Yeah. So, you know, I, I knew there was an explosion, a real one, but it sounded like someone yelled the word boom and... I instantly put it together. I was like, small explosion, she a neighborhood, we got hit by an EFP. I re- realize now, in retrospect, that boom, someone yelling at me, it was just like my brain going into like micro shock and being like, something really bad just happened to this body. <laughs> really bad. Like, right. I'm just going to fire everything right now. And so I, I started realizing, you know, shortly after that, I was well, being held up in the hatch because I was sitting on those hatches. I was being held up, you know, by my elbows and my body armor, basically. But, you know, I was I was slumped down, and at that moment, I suddenly couldn't feel my lower body, which was very disconcerting, as you'd imagine. Yeah. But so I look down through the hatch; I can kind of see through a gap. I see my right leg, and as soon as I see it, it turns back on, and I can feel. It. I'm able to. It was kind of just like crumpled a little bit, so I was able to plant it on the bench, and then I looked over my left leg. And, you know, that, our uniforms are really, especially those, uh, those ACUs would, I mean, those are really good at hiding severity of injuries sometimes because they would just get soaked with blood and, you know, they it just get yeah. sticky, stick, stick to things or there was no doubt there was a bad injury because I'm looking down, I see my tibia just like snap like a tree branch. I'm looking at my kneecap and I was like, shit, I, I got hit by an EFP. 
then I, I, after that, I must have like, must have passed out or something, but I did lose consciousness. And it's really interesting because I, I don't remember what it, where I was or what it was or what was going on, but I was in my happy place. Uh, I'm serious. I, it was probably something akin to like a beach, you know, it was super warm. It felt really good. And I was like, damn, I just, I just pass out in the sun and have this crazy dream of getting blown up by an EFP and uh, yeah, like a Corona commercial or something. And I don't know how long I was in that dream or state or whatever it was, but I just remember it suddenly starting to end and I was like, oh shit, no, that was real. And just kind of coming to you on the, on the floor of the striker. I was on uh, this guy, Darren Smith, Sergeant Darren Smith. I was on his leg. He was screaming bloody murder. I was fortunately had such damage, especially nerve, nerve stuff that I just, I didn't really, I didn't feel any pain. I felt very, very uncomfortable. Um, but I didn't feel any pain. And I was also trying to be like, okay, I gotta, I gotta figure out what's going on, what the situation is and, and all that stuff. So those are the, so I, these are the first moments like after you kind of realize, yeah, oh shit, here's so, what's going on. Yeah. So the striker stops again. We had so many people in, in sector at that time that the whole company there was out there was pretty much there within two minutes. So, you know, I was just, it was now just me like, Hey, stay alive, you know, maybe, uh, crack some jokes to, to try to make people laugh. I, I cracked a, cause I don't, I mean, I, I, I guess, I guess I was doing a good job of not, I don't know, tricking myself into not thinking about my situation too much. So yeah. I was distracting myself. I mean, at first it was like, Oh, you know, I gotta, you know, make sure, Hey, is there a security up is, you know, is, you know, what are people, where are we? Uh, it turns out we had the, the striker got hit by three FPs. You know, it's probably like someone turned it on when we went out and then just, you know, figured, I think, you know, from what I've heard, it was really just, you know, a couple of shitheads that were, well, we got that EFP out there. Oh, let's set up, you know, things are getting quiet. Let's, let's have some fun because they've been out there for a while, but the, the truck got hit by three of them and one of them punched through the radios Radios cut a bunch of that. So that, you know, that boom was definitely just purely in my head. Some of that shrapnel from that one went in every single person in the vehicle got hit. Other than the driver was up in a separate compartment. Everybody got hit by shrapnel from actually one of the first two. The third one kind of just didn't hit anybody, fortunately. And one guy died. Uh, a kid named Wayne Geiger from, so I heard from California, but he's out in East of Sierra. It's a place called Lone Pine. And, um, yeah, you know, you would, if, if you saw, you know, from one side of it, his face, you wouldn't have known. And it just was a you know, piece of shrapnel went in and, you know, just, just, uh, shitty luck with, with those things. Cause an EFP, you know, I mean, it punches through as a solid, big slug the size of your fist, but as it loses kinetic energy, it just shotgun blasts out there. Right. Um, you know, so he's, he's, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, he's dead. And, you know, I'm on Darren's leg and he's screaming. So I'm trying to get off of it. And again, I'm doing things. I remember, I remember I, I had like, I'm trying to get these great ideas. Like, oh, we're going to like crawl backwards and the ramp had broke. So I was like, we'll fall out and not realize it was four feet. Who knows what extra damage I did to myself. <laughs> he does the same thing. Apparently I said, I remember this. So I'm like, all right, let's try to get over there that, to the berm thing on the side of the road. <laughs> and uh, we did not <laughs> unable to, you know. We didn't make it very far, uh, mostly because my leg was in like eight million pieces, and it turns out my half my oh my internal organs were nailed, and my uh, my pelvis was broken. So anyway, again, credit to 
uh, a credit to, you know, the, you know, first or the training, you know, that we do the medical training, right. Uh, field medical training credit to the hospital in Baghdad. You know, I, I knew my leg was bad. You know, we got a tourniquet on it right away. So, you know, we we're able to get up on my thigh, but then I started having blood come out of other poles that I'm starting to find in me. Hold um, on. But before we, before we go, let's pump yeah. the brakes for a second. You just nonchalantly walked through <laughs> your entirety of your injuries. You're like, oh, well, you know, I just tried to crawl from, you know, I decided I'm just going to fall out of the back of a, you know, an eight wheeled, you know, big old vehicle and try to maneuver my way to some, you know, to some cover. And it's like, but, you know, I had a broken pelvis. Hold on a second. You were basically completely incapacitated from your hips downward and you and your guy your guy that's next to you you're like hey man let's we need to get out of here we need to go get where somebody can't shoot us yeah that's uh, huge apparently. like that's a that's, that's <laughs> very big like i don't think yeah i uh, hear what's what's really interesting um about that time was people you know ask and I, one thing too is like listen if i was gonna die there like, I better look fucking, like, cool, you know? And, like, they'll be like, yeah, he was a cool dude. Like, he said some cool shit. And that's the so I, I mean, <laughs> principle of patrolling, right? <laughs> look cool while you're doing it. Yeah. So uh, I, 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 that must be, again, it's it's because I don't, you know, the memory's, the memory's not the best. So I don't remember the, you know, the, the details. But I, I, I'm pretty sure that was going through my head. You know, like, all right, try to try to be cool and the calm. And so, so you can, you know, I don't know. Yeah, cool. I guess. Uh, but um, <laughs> I'm sure, you're just trying but, to keep it together for for the people around you too. I was trying to keep it together, yeah, for everybody. And I felt I was in a position. First, I mean, in all honesty, you know, I had a couple of things on it. First, I I actually go back to that moment in my life, and as as horrible as it was, and as obviously life changing in you know, but. I'm going to be honest, mostly negative ways uh, that that uh, that experience, it really is the most incredible experience of my life. And I think it has to do with the fact that your mind, you know, you are you are just pushed to the limits of that a human body can take. And, you know, the mind just does incredible things like I had. I don't know, it seemed like about five minutes there where my brain was just it was perfect, like information would come in. You know, it went exactly where it needed to go. It was just crystal clear thought. There's no way I could describe it. I, I, right. I've only come, I've come close to that level of, well, yeah, pretty much. Actually, I've, I've pretty much gotten there, but in, with less control, ironically, using psychedelics is like the closest I've been to that, where your mind is that just open and fluid. Right. And, you know, you're, you're just such, so powerful is really, I mean, the beauty of it is, again, these are probably just tricks I was that looking cool, things like that to try to not think about, yeah, I might die now, you know? So, well, I mean, I think you hit a really important point. Like, I try to, you know, express to people like, you know, they're like, oh, well, what's it like to get shot at or something like that? And you're like, I, I can't really explain it to you. It's like, but there's a sharpness. Everything becomes very clear. And all of a sudden there is... You know, I don't know. Is it, yeah, no, it's a hundred blood. It's your dopamine and it's your adrenaline. Yeah. And obviously like perfect distance. Yeah. They're just, they're shooting yeah. up, but somehow in addition to that, 
you know, unlike if you try to do it artificially with drugs, like somehow your mind also produces other things that is able to use that extra dopamine and use that extra adrenaline. So everything right. does get crystal clear. You know, your senses get time slows down, your senses increase. And, you know, you're actually, again, it's not even, it's like you've taken control in a weird way over your fight or flight mode. So you can fight mm -hmm. in a coherent and maximally effective way. And I think maybe it's just, you know, from training or who knows what. But yeah, no, I agree. The, the you know, the times when, when my life's both been in peril, it's probably the clearest it's been. And then it, it sometimes it's been years later that I like just feel the, it's almost like it was bottled up and put away somewhere and it just will come out and hit me and it'll just a wave of like, oh, God, like I just put myself mentally back in that situation. I'm like freaking out. Right. And that's, uh, yeah. Yeah. And not I, like I a, think that's like a really incredible thing. Yeah. And not like a, you know, like a, like a, uh, PTSD, something we can definitely can talk about, but not in that kind of like uh, chronic way. But still, like even, you know, I have, you know, I've definitely, you know, had some, uh, and a lot of it's more related to the aftermath of the injury and things like that, you know, mental health things that I've, I've had to work through, uh, for sure. Some of them might even have yeah. a bit of a, you know, genetic basis, but I, I don't, um, you know, the, the P, we should be careful because I do get, you know, money from, for, for disability, uh, for PTSD. And, um, it's, it's not the standard, uh, you know, I'll say there's definitely psychological, you know, issues aggravate from my services aggravated, you know, created this, you know, created some, some issues. Um, so it's, you know, it's legitimate, but, you know, PTSD, as far as, you know, the classical definition is something that, you know, I've been, uh, uh lucky that I guess I haven't, you know, I don't, I don't really have, but that said, you know, I think everybody, you know, no matter what, you know, that the mental health or, you know, what they've been through, um, we'll say that, Hey, I, I think a lot of times those, those things, you know, those bottled them up in those moments where your brain chemistry went, you know, haywire, it just comes back and hits you, you know, I don't care who right. you are. I guess that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, too, you know, it's like what you said, you get into a, a point where you take in an extreme amount of data, your brain absorbs and processes, you know, amazingly an extreme amount of data. And I think sometimes it sorts through it so quickly in those moments that, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think it can unpack everything even in, in a, you know, within a few months, I think, you know, as you said, I think later years later, you know, weeks later, months later, you start to unpack some of that like that. But I think you go through these traumatic moments when your brain is operating at such a capacity and then it, it packs some of that stuff away because there's no way you can analyze it in, them, in those moments, but you can later. Yeah. Yep. No, absolutely. So you go through, you know, the medevac and, 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 and all the details of that. Um, I guess just, you know, just one, just to, to again, give a shout out to the folks that work in at, you know, like the, the cash there, the combat sport hospital in, in Baghdad. Um, I remember I was in there, you know, they're cutting the, the thing off me at this time. I thought all my injuries to my leg, you know, I didn't know if there, are, I had this weird tickling in my stomach. I didn't, you know, I thought it was, and there was a red bump on it. I thought I like just hit it against the hatch or against my armor or something like that. And, uh, you know, they cut the armor off me and, and I remember the guy gets a stick, like a giant spigot in my leg and like 
you know, take a scalpel, cut this thing up. I can't feel anything. You know, I've got like no blood left in me. I was somehow, I was able to stay conscious somehow. I mean, I was also at the time I was about 230 pounds of, of muscle. I mean, I was running like sub 12 minute, two miles on the, on the airfield there or up the side of biop. I mean, I was in the incredible, incredible shape. Thank God. Cause it's the only thing that kept me alive. Yeah. I mean, cause all we did was eat, sleep, take supplements, <laughs> drank a lot of, you know, actually stay pretty hydrated. So anyway, that's so true. You know, because here's the thing I touch my stomach and it is rock hard. I mean, rock hard. I'm not talking my abs right now. I am talking like there is a giant piece of metal like under my skin and there is no wounds anywhere in the front of me. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I was like, shit, I might not actually make it. <laughs> um, this piece of shrapnel, it turns out, hit me left, left, just below my left butt cheek, went all the way through and settled up uh, about an inch to my navel, just a few you know, millimeters under the skin. If it had broken through, it probably would have killed me if it had an exit wound. So that's you know incredible. And that's just because of all the just meat I had you know, uh, on there. So, uh, I just remember these guys though, you know, going back to the hospital staff, uh, I mean, they're jumping over me and especially after I did that, I was like, Oh, I'm like, uh, you gotta do something. And they're like, oh, okay. So they're jumping over me, taking x-rays, exposing themselves to the x-ray machine, and everything. And I was just blown away that they were doing that. And they did that time and time and time again. So yeah, that the house, I mean, the care was incredible. They kept me alive any other year, any other war and death, probably every, any prior year in that war, I would have been dead but we had advanced trauma surgery and, uh, you know, on the battlefield care so much. So yeah, I spent about 24 hours total in Baghdad, about 12 hours in Balad. They've chopped me up to Balad and then from Balad flew to Germany. I was from Germany for a week An excellent time and launch still part of it was even though I had all these, you know, every organ got hit. So my, my, I had a colostomy cause my large intestine got hit. I mean, my, there's a bunch of small bowel in there. I can't imagine that didn't escape stomach got hit, uh, liver got nicked, bladder got nicked. I had like the biggest catheter you can imagine. But interestingly, because I was just so big, you know, and, so, and otherwise, you know, I hadn't had a drink of alcohol in like three months. Yeah. I was in such good shape that I remember my mother, you know, I didn't have to have an NG tube in, you know, so I had this tube in my nose. But if you covered me from, you know, my, my middle of my stomach down, I looked fine. You know, I had, I mean, it's mostly a farmer's tan, but, you know, I had some color in my face and my arms. I was big. I was, you know, looked really healthy. So my mother came in. I remember a week, a week after I actually got hurt was when she finally came out with some family to Germany to escort me, you know, to come with me back to Walter Reed. You know, she was, and again, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but this is a woman who like, uh, you know, the last thing in the world she wanted, literally, honestly, the last thing she ever wanted to see was her son go to war after having her, her brother went to Vietnam and he came back, but definitely different. And there's a lot of other dysfunction in that house that like reinforced it, you know? So at 10 years old, she was, she had this trauma that uh, kind of stayed with her. So she wasn't yeah. happy of this, as you can imagine, about me going to Iraq, but um, you know, she was, she was getting ready to see like the guy one, you know, the Metallica song one. Or I think there's that book, Tiny Get Your Gun, which is basically what that song is about. It's a guy who just gets arms, legs off. You know, right. She thought it was going to be a mess. She walked in. She said it was such a shock because that looked fine. Like what's, you know, she didn't see everything was covered up. Yeah. But again, testament to, to you know, working out. So uh, don't skip, don't skip leg day. Don't uh, drink your protein shakes, kids. <laughs>
Yeah, but the problem is, then I get to Walter Reed, which at that time was after the big scandal, which was more on the admin side, where people were getting lost, you know, in the system, ETS dates coming up, stop getting paid, they're still impatient. Well, now we had, you know, we've gotten so good at keeping people alive, and we had the surge going on, that uh, it was just a madhouse. And I actually came closer, I think, to dying in Walter Reed than I did in the streets of Baghdad. Because very quickly, once I got there, between the Caribbean, a little not great tail for another time and all of a sudden my body burning through all that extra mass i had on me because i left there as i think like 166 pounds at my lightest from 230 and yeah i was uh you know i spent 100 days inpatient between wow. you know uh launch stool walter reed and then a hospital in new york city for a little bit and actually up at keller army community hospital at west point i was there for a week good old keller yep. <laughs> and yeah go keller go go cat uh, yeah, and I finally got out and I was assigned to a warrior transition unit up there, uh, which are those units they had to, you know, because of the Walter Reed issue to better just, it was an admin unit. It was actually mostly med boards and things like that. Non-deploying folks, not, that was the first combat wounded guy in there. So that was, that was, uh, was a bit of a challenge. And I, that started though, a period of about two and a half years where I, it was a constant cycle of surgery because I had my leg. I had this big metal cage, this external fixator on it for about eight months. They took that off. I, thank goodness, they could take both my legs. They're uh, if they, you know, in exchange to to reverse my colostomy, so I could, you know, potty like a normal person. So that was I was grateful for that. But I was still, you know, trying to keep the leg, and I really going through limb salvage is a technical term. And it was, you know, every three months I'd have a surgery. It just seemed to be going nowhere because I'd have surgery. It'd be very painful. I'd be stuck on my butt back really for about a month before I can finally even start doing physical therapy. Do that for about you know four to six weeks, realizing you know the surgery, and there I went back. And that that was probably took its toll on me more. And uh, I was you know that at the time this is the peak of the opioid, at least from a prescribing standpoint, the peak of when it was being given out, especially in the military. Right. So you know I was just taking massive doses of opiates, and you know I. I mean, sometimes I needed them, then I probably was, you know, thought I needed them more than I actually did. And that was kind of the insidious thing that they will do is that, you know, once you become dependent on them, even if you're like, hey, I'm really motivated, like, I'm going to I'm going to take the pain and just, you know, suck. I'm going to take the first of all, discomfort from withdrawal. And then also, you know, take the pain that I'm experiencing that it's actually, you know, I'm taking it for. And I'm going to, I'm going to get through it. And no, you know, it turned, your brain starts turning that pain up until it's unbearable. So the more you're on, you know, opiates for pain, the less able you are to actually take pain. So it was a very tough, you know, two and a half year period where I was going to do all these surgeries. And finally I made the, the decision, like, I can't live like this. I can't sit here on, on just drugs. It was just out in space all the time. I felt like I couldn't remember anything. You know, and my functionality is not getting any better. I want to get an amputation. So I made the decision to go down to Fort Sam Houston uh, in Texas in 2010 to get this amputation. Now, one thing I had actually been able to do, which I'm pretty proud of, during that time of recovery, only because I could be a full-time business school applicant, was apply to business school. So um, I had to take the GMAT twice. You know, fortunately, somehow with everything going on, did well enough in that. And then again, just writing in applications for schools because my, my brain, I mean, it took me about 10 times longer to do anything, you know, but I was able to get into to grad school. In fact, it was 
in fact, for my interview for the school I went to, which was, was Harvard, I knew by the time I was going there for the interview that I was going to have to defer. And I was, I think the only reason they let me in because the only school that let me in was because of the interview. And it was because I was so nervous to, about asking the, my interviewers, director of missions herself, you know, hey, am I wasting our time here because I have to defer? And I had already gotten some cold answers, like lukewarm answers from the, some of the other schools about deferring. She said, oh, no, we have absolutely yeah. no problems deferring you for that, you know, for that reason. And I was so confident that I, I just forgot I was in this interview and, you know, I, I crushed it. But um, but uh, yeah, that's awesome. You know, so we, uh, so I, I fortunately had all these things going for me and I was able to get down. A, I picked Fort Sam because I knew it was, you know, I heard about the Center for the Intrepid and I knew it was away from DC. And I just, it was such a mess, you know, my experience at Walter Reed. I didn't want to go back there. So I went down there, best decision I made. Uh, ironically, I get down there in April. I tell them, hey, I have to be out of here to start school next August, no matter what. Let's get this amputation next week to make sure my med board and all that stuff's good. They're like, no, we want you to try this one last thing. I said, I've already tried one last thing three different times. I'm good. Like, can we get the schedule? Where's the you know scheduler? And they're like, no, nobody's going to do your surgery. You, you basically need to try this thing. And it was because, honestly, they had a bunch of research money and they needed participants. So, I mean, I think they, they meant the best for me, too. But I said, okay, with the understanding, like, hey, like, I, if this isn't working in three months, like, we, we got to get the surgery going. So it turns out it was a great thing because, you know, that the device they used, uh, you know, the best prosthetist, the best, and I'm not, this is not, you know, exaggerations or hyperbole. I really are thinking, you know, uh, that, you know, the best prosthetist in the world, the guy, Ryan Blanc, who's actually making these external prostheses, basically, that they had me try, this orthotic. The best yeah. physical limb salvage physical therapist in the world, and that's that's one hundred percent you know objective. He wrote the book on it, Johnny Owens, and just an incredible care team. And they did things like, you know, like, hey, I'm gonna get off these opiates. Okay, well, we're gonna start giving your pills at like you know every two days. And I'm like, oh, I'm a big boy, and they're like, I don't care. And that's actually something you need because there'll be times if they didn't do that where I'd be like, man, I'm feeling rough. Today. Let me just take an extra just to chill. And you know, that's not how you're gonna you're gonna wean yourself off those. So incredible protocol. And really the Definitely key not. was that that device allowed me to finally fire my muscles, use my leg to a degree I hadn't been able to use it in years. And that was the problem was it was just the vascular system was a wreck. And the, I mean, the the nerves were a mess too, but you know, all these combinations, these different factors, uh, once I was able to, you know, really start using that leg and reprogram it to feel something other than pain, I was shocked. Um, you know, I, still proud day when I threw like, you know, I pain medication. I thought I would never be able to like throw it at one of those, like, you know, get rid of your prescription drugs here uh, that I'd never be able to. And I remember getting rid of the last, you know, I'd half a bottle of this stuff. I was super proud. I was able to do that. And I was off, not only off painkillers, but through withdrawals because there was a little bit withdrawal period, but they were able to minimize that even before my amputation. And um, I never even had a pick line or yeah, a, awesome. uh, IV pain pump after my medication, I just, I was able to control with pills. Cause it was, I mean, I was also motivated for yeah. that because I just, it was, I felt so trapped. Did, I mean, did, did it feel like a weight lifted off your shoulders that you, did, did you feel like you were tied, tied down by it? Yeah, absolutely. Cause I knew I couldn't function in normal society like that. All right, let's take a quick break. One topic that Ryan really hits well is even if you haven't had a leg amputated as a result of injuries from a major IED attack, sometimes we all need help. Last episode, I told you about how I needed some help getting t-shirts to commemorate my company's Afghanistan deployment because the company I used just didn't work out. 
Right after, Emblem Athletic offered to help me fix myself from being all laid up and get these sweet deployment shirts knocked out with them. In a little over a week, the gear was designed and now the store is open. I just want to say that it was one of the smoothest and easiest experiences I've ever had with any company. I uploaded some quick designs, offered some written guidance, they worked their voodoo, and turned them into awesome gear that will ship out around the world and my brothers could be proud to wear anywhere without looking like some Joe that just grabbed their first shirt they found at the Airborne gift shop. They even worked with me to create an option that even the wives and girlfriends couldn't wait to wear. Look, it doesn't have to be hard to create something cool for your team. Head to emblemathletic.com and take a style quiz to get started on your awesome custom gear for your team, unit, or organization so you can look the part of a champion. Now back to Ryan. So yeah, you know, I had this operation of success. I was, you know, I was in good shape. And that was another great year in my life. It was actually the, you know, pretty much the year after my amputation. I very quickly got done with my prescribed physical therapy for a specific amputation. And I, my days consisted of, you know, I wake up, I bike over to Fort Sam, go to the center, you know, for the trepid, just basically hang out with all the other guys, you know, that were uh, going through recovering, uh, do some mentorship. I work out I do an hour and a half of cardio in the morning, hour and a half of weights in the afternoon, traveling around, doing all these sporting things, you know, like bike tours and triathlons and stuff. And, you know, it was, it was what I needed after being a prisoner in my own body for a couple of years and, you know, confidence building and things like that. I just wish I was so focused, though, on just getting to the next thing and getting on with my life. I didn't really think through what, you know, life that life was supposed to be. So I gotten into this you know, grad school, business school, which is very general. And uh, and I decided just maybe to, to, again, be the cool guy and add on a, a degree in public policy. I mean, I was interested in it and we were executors of foreign policy as, you know, something to I see how I was crafted, but I was more honestly, I just added it on because I knew the government would pay for it. Yeah. But I didn't, again, I really didn't think through like, what am I going to do with my, I think I thought, well, I'm from New York. Yeah. I'm from New York city. What do the cool new people from New York city do? They're all investment bankers. I'll just go be an investment banker. And, you know, I'm probably happy I didn't do that, but I don't know. You know, I hadn't, I, I had spent so much time as a prisoner focusing on the physical side. And then even that year after, I mean, I didn't do any like mental work development. You know, I might have read a book here and there, but for the most part, I was just enjoying life and, and getting my feeling, like getting yeah. control. I'm in this new body now. I have a new body. You know, I'm missing a leg. I was getting all that, you know, retrospectively, you know, I probably could have used another year to like then get my, get my head together and realized, you know, all these physical things that I felt down about were, you know, the very superficial, I mean, they were very superficial, but I mean, a little bit deeper than superficial because they affected my life, but it was covering for some deeper things that I, I had to figure out, you know? Yeah. So Ryan headed off to graduate school at Harvard, taking on a dual program where he could get a master's in public policy and then another one in business administration. His experience was decidedly different this time. The undergrad experience, how much I treasured just being five guys sober, sitting in a room talking about life. And, you know, in, in grad school, I was like, well, I, I'm supposed to live that life I didn't live. So, yeah, I definitely partied too hard. He spent time traveling when others did internships with one particular trip I was amazed by. Okay, I'm going to travel to China. I went to North Korea of all freaking places. Just imagine a one-legged veteran going to North Korea. But more or less meandered through most of the experience before the concept of entrepreneurship caught his eye. With that, he pursued a project that engaged his interest in tinkering and got exposure to technology. 
A big part of school in pursuing these projects is building personal networks. Ryan's network got him to visit the Bay Area and check out a new technology concept. And a couple weeks later, he picked up his life and moved out there to work on it. It didn't quite work out. Fortunately, the technology just probably a little too soon for it, but uh, we had trouble commercializing it. Which sometimes happens in business. But oftentimes, the reason we go places doesn't turn out to be the reason we end up there. And unfortunately, it just it wasn't going anywhere. Um, um, I worked in healthcare for after that, but I worked with Warrior Rising, something I got to give a shout out to and a plug. So Warrior Rising, it's it's a nonprofit 501c3 that's that's created to support veteran entrepreneurs. And we refined our model, but the core thing we do is something called Warrior Academy, which is you know module based training program for you know folks who are very new to entrepreneurship who are coming from the military that might not even have an idea. Even folks with business plans, they can get something out of it. We then give you a business plan review and then kind of try to funnel you in a mentorship pipeline uh, or where we even do direct cash grants after going through a cost benefit analysis. And for any uh, military entrepreneurs or family members of, uh, of military members that have a business idea, go to www.warriorising.org and sign up there. Very cool. Just taking a step back, probably about six months after I got out here, and this is what's getting me to where I'm at now is, you know, two things happen. I started kind of went to some kind of like random veterans, like a vets and tech event. And I started just interacting with the veteran community then. And then I also figured, well, hell, you know, I'm living out in California. I kept seeing these green crosses all over the place and I realized there were dispensaries. It's like, oh yeah, they have those weed dispensaries out here. Yeah. Maybe I should try it. And I had never really, you know, I, I grew up in New York. So I, you know, tried it in high school and the first two times, nothing happened. And next two times were just awful, 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 horrible experiences. So, um, you know, I didn't really think much about it and they really took it too seriously, but didn't really demonize it. So, uh, you know, I get out here and I get my little card, you know, not really thinking it's a big deal. It's like, well, what if, should I bring all my medical records? I got reams of them. Not realizing it's like, hey, pay us $55 and here's your card, you know, <laughs> we'll find something wrong with you. And uh, yeah, I went down there and, you know, got some cannabis to try and was like, oh, you know, I'm sort of very slow, easy and safe. And, oh, this is not like having a couple of beers, a little bit different, but I'm relaxing and I would have a great night's sleep. I'd wake up feeling like a million bucks. And I started noticing that I was taking two Advil, deal, not even realizing it. And I realized I didn't need those Advil anymore. And that was just from occasional use. Yeah. So there was that. And then. You know, the veterans out here, because especially in the Bay Area, where cannabis use is very normalized for probably at least the past decade now, it kept coming up over and over and over again. And then I met someone that said, cannabis saved my life. And you're like, okay, buddy. Uh, uh, all right. You know, good, good for you. Like, clearly this guy's, you know, smoking too much of that stuff. <laughs> and then you hear it again. And you hear it again. And you're like, shit, maybe there's something to this. And yeah, I had this powerful talk with a guy who's like an E8. Like a former, I think he had first sergeant time, master sergeant. He was saying, you know, he had like two daughters that were, you know, like a couple of years away from graduating. One was like a junior, one was a senior in high school. He had like two and a half years left on his mortgage. And as soon as everything was paid off and the girls were in school, he was going to kill himself. 100%. And you know, this guy was not bullshitting. And he said, you know, a couple of years earlier, someone, you know, said, try this. You know, what's, what's it going to hurt? And it, again, it saved his life. And, and me being the scientist, well, how? The reason I wanted to kill myself was because I was having the same dream every single night of my life. No matter what I did, no matter the you know, behavioral therapy I got, didn't help. 
the pharmaceuticals they were giving me just turned me into a zombie during the day. Couldn't live with it. Couldn't live with it, you know, on the medication. So yeah, I was going to do that. And cannabis, what it does is especially for post-traumatic stress that manifests itself as nightmares, THC both turns down the frequency and intensity of REM sleep. This is a proven, you know, effect of it. And again, has saved lives through that effect because people have these horrible nightmares. It turns them off. Yeah. And the guy only uses before he goes to sleep every night and he hasn't had issue in a couple of years. So that's amazing. So yeah, those two things kind of planted the seed and uh, eventually, eventually found my way into it after working in healthcare. I mean, that's an incredible story. Something that's just really hard to escape is the stigma of using cannabis, really one that's been propagated by even its own supporters. It seems like we're hitting a point where the benefits of using cannabis in different forms is nearly impossible to refute. I guess one thing that pharmaceuticals don't deal with is starting out with existing negative stigmas. Typically, they're created as a prescribed solution to existing problem, with some exceptions. I just think it would be amazing if uh, the applications and derivatives of cannabis could be seen in the same light as other prescriptions. I mean, just as part of like many tools that can be used in a treatment plan for depression or PTSD or I mean, name your malady. Absolutely. Yeah, you said it really, really well. But yeah, so we're working on, you know, getting access for veterans. Again, I, I've met many veterans out here who I am convinced it, it, they're alive today because of the access to this plant. And there are veterans that I know, again, folks I recover with, whether it's Walter Reed or at Fort Sam Houston, guys I recover with at those two places. I mean, there are folks who are either still stuck in a cycle and haven't gone anywhere in now 10 years or who are no longer alive today, either directly or indirectly because of their pharmaceutical medications. You know, this isn't a wonder drug that's going to cure everything. It's not like you take it and you're fine. It's a tool that I think most people who served can use to live a better life again if they need it you know some might not need it right but to live a, a better life through again some of the uh, directly therapeutic effects that it has on you know symptoms that are common both physical uh, and mental emotional and also as you know a a potential and you know at times alternative to you know other substances namely alcohol for right. social activities which you know of course, the military doesn't have any problem with alcohol at all. No, no, no. Which is complete sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there is. That's the thing. Is I mean, obviously, we're, we're going against decades of, of negative you know, muckraking and spinning of uh, this plant and, and its capabilities and what it's all about. And now that we're, it's coming out into the light, we're able to show that you can really deconstruct this, this plant and pull really beneficial, targeted things out of it and remove, sometimes completely, some of the stuff you don't want. Right. So there is, you know, a lot of medical benefits to be had without psychoactivity or with minimal psychoactivity or ways to control that psychoactivity that addresses a lot of problems. And it's funny because you said the alcohol thing and, you know, alcohol typically makes people more aggressive, lowers inhibitions, things like that, creates more social lubrication. So especially when you're in a group, the group wants to, you know, fight more, right. raises aggression in a group setting. And yeah, generally cannabis doesn't do this. It does two things. It makes you a little bit more risk aware, but it doesn't necessarily make you soft or weak. Oftentimes you can just de-escalate situations when it makes sense and you just don't do stupid things. Right. You know, I guess the challenge with cannabis, unlike a lot of other pharmaceuticals, you know, those are very, where their, where their effects might be very systemic and especially side effects you don't want. You know, you are taking this one chemical in right. there. Whereas cannabis is extremely complex 
you know, a hundred now cannabinoids is probably like nine or 10 ones that are in anywhere in trace amounts, but there's a lot of others. And, you know, we're just learning about those, the terpenes, which are the scent molecules, the flavonoids, all these different components, you know, of this weed. It's very hard to create hyper-targeted, you know, this is like a single compound. Like there's, there's, they isolated and created synthetic cannabinoids. The trouble is, is they're just not nearly as effective. Right. So, you know, it is going to be something that's a little bit more work, I think. Uh, for folks to do it right and to use it as a tool. But again, fortunately, it's something that can be done. And, you know, I, I'll give another shout out. Uh, if, you know, if veterans are out there interested in, in learning more is, you know, there's a lot of information from veterans out there. Uh, veterans Cannabis Project has great information. Weed for Warriors is a grassroots organization. I, I kind of see them as like the, the weed team, red, white, and blue. Very nice. So where team red, white, and blue is doing a really... <laughs> Yeah, really awesome service by, you know, mental health, addressing it through bringing people together and service and fitness and things like that. We for Warriors is is doing that through cannabis. It's just, you know, having, hey, let's all get together, you know, and you can learn more about it. You can, you know, consume with others. And that actually allows from a a group bonding standpoint, uh, a very safe friendly, relaxed way to make some of those bonds again and, and be able to actually and open up sometimes and tell more with your, your brothers and sisters out there, veterans, than you typically otherwise would. I mean, a lot of people don't want to trouble other veterans or a lot of people think they're giving up on working with the, you know, their fellow veterans uh, for a variety of reasons. Right. So again, great organizations, Operation EVAC, this is the Bay Area now, you know, but if anyone's out here and wants to learn more, uh, my name twin, Ryan Miller, who made my life really hard because he's one of the greatest human beings I ever met in my life. So I can't screw up now and ruin, ruin his name, but he runs probably the most effective veterans group therapy modality I've ever seen. And it's, you know, it's not like people get high and then talk in there. I mean, people will consume sometimes. Most people don't consume even before going in. But because, you know, everybody is is drawn there because there is a compassionate giving program. You know, he does uh, distribute uh, gift cannabis. You know, there's also a, a discussion, an hour-long discussion before and about certain topics for people. Everyone kind of gets pretty deep. And then there's a meditation afterwards. You know, the reason, though, people are comfortable there, they're coming there not because of the free weed. They're coming there because they figure people won't be as judgmental. And it's such a powerful thing, especially right. in this day and age where yeah, everyone feels so judged in many ways, I believe. Yeah. I think something that you talked about that's really important there is, you know, the idea of community. Because yeah, when I think about the veterans of our modern day wars, I know for a fact that VFW memberships are down. I know that the American Legion memberships are down, you know, that the younger veterans aren't as involved in those and that the community for younger veterans isn't quite as tight knit. It's important to have that community. And and really, if you can work that community into a way of treating people, to a way of people being able to express what they're experiencing and, and, and talk about it and then and be comforted that it's like, hey, you're not crazy for having these thoughts or, or, or having these things come back to you. I mean, that, like you said, that's a powerful thing. Uh, that's a that's an incredible yeah, thing. I think, you know, I mean, one thing I think you bought that was really important is, you know, the physical connection. Not just going online and, t- and being a part of a Facebook group or shooting some emails, but, you know, regular physical interaction with a peer group, some kind of tribal group is just so important. No, I think that's an incredible point. So here's a question. The VA just you know, recently struck down the idea of cannabis being a, a treatment avenue that they would support. How do we help promote this idea that there's nothing wrong with it? You know, how do we say, 
you are neglecting a viable treatment avenue for many people. Is there much discussion around that? There is. And I think, you know, I've talked to people pretty high up in the VA, they're very high up, and they, uh, they know this is out there and they know it's helping vets. It's just, it's who's going to make the move. And right now, getting anything to happen in Washington is, it, nothing's happening there. You know, there's a few cannabis bills that are going up. I think people are trying to figure out how to do strategically. There are people on both sides of the aisle wondering, all right, how do I play this issue for ma- to maximize votes? Because it's no longer a Democratic-only issue. It's a bipartisan issue now. you got support right. from all sides of the aisle. And a lot of it is because of the veteran voice out there. The problem is it is yeah. quietly being politicized because it's still low priority because, you know, if you're going to help veterans, there are other things you can say politically that, you know, might not have as much of an impact, but like are good enough. And this is one that it's just too tricky, but I'm very hopeful. So here, here's what we can do now is again, if you are, you know, living in a state where you have a medical program and you're in the VA, first of all, uh, you know, the VA, there are rules now. The VA cannot deny you benefits, cannot deny you any kind of care or mess with you for cannabis use. I know that's, you know, I mean, that's been the unofficial rule out here in, in other California, so I can be very open. I know there's still places where people don't feel comfortable, especially in places where it's illegal, being open with their provider, even if they're using it and getting in it from a, you know, a, a great well, black market source. If you can get it, though, legally, I'd say, you know, re- reach out, look, look at some of these organizations and, you know, start realizing that there's a lot of people out there who will be willing to talk to you and mentor you on how you can use this medication the first thing we got to get is access to, I mean, I believe every American, but particularly every veteran, that's number one. Number two is it has to be subsidized or reimbursable. If you can go into a VA and get a bag of Oxycontin from the VA for free right now, but I still got to hopefully live in a place where there's enough compassionate giving that I can get free cannabis or I'm paying a lot out of pocket for that, which is so much better for me and my quality of life than the pharmaceutical. By the way, this is not too crazy because Israel and Canada both already have these programs for their military veterans. Yeah, so lastly, uh, I, I have the honor of moderating a panel at South by Southwest. It's, uh, we've got a great group of panelists. It's uh, gonna be myself, Todd Scatini, who's also a West Pointer and runs a company, Harvest 360, out of Kansas City. Uh, Amber Center, who's uh, out here with me, She's a, uh, a multiple cannabis business owner. She'll kill me. I can't remember if it's Air Force or Coast Guard, but uh, also a veteran. And then Joy Craig, who is a uh, retired Marine. So different perspectives. It's going to be really interesting. We're uh, actually focused on the DOD. So our talk is called Duty Bound, why the Department of Defense DOD should embrace cannabis. We know that it's not a matter of if. It's when some federal legalization change will create access for pretty much all Americans. We want to make sure the DOD recognize that and not only you know supports that and doesn't try to make their own set of rules for the service members, but really embraces and looks at it as an opportunity. Honestly, there's some culture changes that we're going to talk, you know, cult- alcohol culture. You know, so it's, it's kind of integral. This alcohol is integral to these cultures, but at the same time, it's, it's very destructive. I'm not saying we, you know, make everyone high instead of drink on the weekends. I'm not saying it's a, the solution, but again, it's part of a set of solutions that I think the Department of Defense could take to, you know, which is essentially a force protection measure to, uh, you know, improve really the health of the force by reducing again, direct alcohol accidents, domestic violence, things like that. Uh, and there's also a huge 
research capability that the Department of Defense brings, especially medical related, that uh, they could really move the ball forward substantially as much as they've had, you know, for, like in my experience, for prosthetics, for physical therapy and pain management, and actually, you know, uh, comprehensive care management, they, trauma surgery and trauma care that we move the ball on in the military, we can definitely move the ball on cannabis. So uh, that's going to be March 14th at 5 p.m. You can find the details at the link that they're going to have in the description about the panel. We're going to have some senior leaders there already, from possibly from AMED and from Futures Command, and, you know, some other line leaders that are going to be in town because we're going to be during the business and government track, not the kind of business track. We wanted to really make this heavy policy focused rather than kind of business and cannabis focused. So, you know, please spread the word. And here's another thing. If you are a veteran, though, in Austin, and you don't have South by Southwest tickets. We're doing a meetup earlier in the day. Those details are still being hashed out. I believe it's going to be about 2 or 2, 3.30, and it's going to run an hour long. It's going to be in downtown Austin, in the vicinity of the South by Southwest activities, but it's technically a public event. And there, my, uh, my name twin, the other Ryan Miller, he's going to be running that meetup. And it's going to be a little bit of a component of Operation EVAC. That's the organization that he runs, Educating Veterans About Cannabis. He's been doing this for three years. We have not lost a single veteran that has come to meetings via suicide, which is which is really impressive. And he's going to be kind of going over how these meetings educate veterans, how it provides a space for communion, and also some other coping techniques for stress and things like that. So it's, I'm really, really excited about the platform that we have at South by Southwest. Very cool. Now, and, and anyone that goes there can hit up Halal Time, which is Yanni's food truck that's right there in the vicinity. Oh. Yeah, you gotta you gotta hook me up with because I haven't listened to that one yet. Me and you will talk. I'll get his information. I want to hang out. I want to invite him to some of this stuff too. Yeah, no, I'm sure he'd love to. He's a great dude, and you'd you'd very much appreciate his company. Ah, uh, man, no problem, brother. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome, and uh, thank you so much. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode how you could probably help. As you probably know, because it's been thrown in your face a lot, it's an election season. And this spring and fall, on your state election ballots, you're likely to have something cannabis-related. If the prospect of voting in favor of it, particularly if it's for medicinal applications, makes you recoil, I urge you to challenge your position and please learn more. From cancer to depression, post-traumatic stress, and even emergency medicine, there are so many applications that can improve livelihood and save lives. Thank you. Before we part, I want to remind you you don't have to settle for some laminated logo on a cotton beefy tee just to look like you work together. And you don't have to be Globo Gym to get awesome gear. With their 100% satisfaction, no sweat guarantee, Emblem Athletic commands performance with custom gear that brings out the badass and the best in your unit. Start building your custom shop at emblemathletic.com. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to the show. If you liked it, please share it with family and friends, and please consider leaving a rating, or even better, a review. It really does help. And while you're at it, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect with the show, you can visit the website at nstiwpodcast.com. Follow on Twitter at nstiwpodcast1, or on Instagram or Facebook at NSTIW Podcast, where you will receive additional notifications as well as additional content. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to see it continue to dive into bigger and better stories, consider donating. 
navigate to the website where you can read how the donation will be used and you can easily donate over PayPal. On a final note, if you or someone you know has a story worth telling, please submit a summary via a contact form on the website for consideration. Thanks again and get out there and do something worth telling about.